This is games in schools and libraries. The podcast about board, card and digital games and the ways in which they can find a place in schools or at the local library. Hosting provided by the Games for Educators website www.g4ed.com Hello and welcome to Games in Schools and Libraries. Uh, my name is Giles Pritchard. I'm a teacher at St George's Road Primary School in Shepparton, Australia. I teach a Grade 3-4 class and use games for a variety of reasons, supporting curriculum for a games club and running games days as well with the school. Uh, you can find me on my blog, castlebymoonlight.blogspot.com or on Twitter as P. And I'm Donald Dennis, uh, the teen technology librarian at the Georgetown County Library System, where I use games all over the place for uh, to support other programs, like our hurricane program or our financial fitness programming. And you can also find me all over the internet um, on my On Board Games podcast and on the On RPGs podcast. So if you really missed my voice once this is done, you can probably find it somewhere else. And joining us on the microphone as well, away from Syracuse, I assume Syracuse, is the uh, sublime Scott Nicholson. Welcome. Welcome back. Well, hello there. Thank you all for having me back on your show. Yay! Woohoo! <laughs> and if you're a long-time librarian, you'll recognize Scott from, not only from previously on this show, but he did the Games and Libraries podcast about, uh, I don't know, it seems like 40 years ago, but I guess it was probably three years ago. <laughs> That's true, and and also the uh, Games and Libraries online course, which was back in 2009. I did a course on YouTube. It's a 30-video series about games and libraries. It actually was a MOOC before MOOCs became popular, and unlike most MOOCs, it's actually open. All right, so why don't you explain MOOC? Oh, all right. I don't know if you talked about that. MOOC, massively uh, open online course. It's the, based on the idea is that it's a course that uh, someone puts online, and the concept is that it's open to all to be engaged with, and you've got the content, you've got discussions, there may be some sort of assessments going on. Um, there's more and more growth of MOOCs. The problem I have with most MOOCs is they're not actually open. They have a brief time where you can sign up, but if you don't get in within that window, it's closed and blocked behind a password. And once the course is over, the content is still blocked. You can't get to it. And and I'm, I'm disturbed by this trend of people calling their courses MOOCs when they're not actually open. They're closed. Um, so unlike that, you can still find my whole Games and Libraries course on YouTube if you want to go and search for it there. Um, all 30 videos are still up there helping folks learn, and it, it'd be appropriate for teachers as well. If, if the idea is how do you use recreational games in a facilitated setting. So much in the way many libraries are free, your course is free. That's right. As long as YouTube keeps it that way. Um, then, But there's a lot going on right now with MOOCs in higher education, and universities are trying to figure out how to use them uh, properly and how to put them out there. And folks are running these courses, and at the end they're saying, well, what, did, what benefit did we get out of that? Um, but my own little... Uh, my own soapbox on that is it bothers me how many folks are calling their course a MOOC when they're locked behind Coursera or Blackboard or some sort of tool, and if you don't have a login, you can't actually see it, and so it really shouldn't be called open, which is one of the O's in the word MOOC. Hmm. Hmm. Well, we should come up with some alternate def definition of MOOC and slander them with that 
and then you know redefine another term for your stuff. We could call it mookification. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Scott Nicholson. I'm a professor at Syracuse University School of Information Studies. I run the Because Play Matters Game Lab. I do a lot of work with uh, meaningful gamification, which is the concept of using game elements to help someone find meaning in something. And I speak out a lot against reward-based gamification, which is probably what you've heard of using levels and badges and achievements and points. And I say, you know, there are a lot better ways to use elements from game of games other than the scoring systems to help people do something. Remember, you, you come on, you come on our. Um games and schools and libraries, uh, I think it was episode 15, um, talking about that process of gamification and you had your, uh, what was the acronym that you had again? The BLAPS, was it? BLAP, yeah, yeah. badges, levels and leaderboards, achievements mm. and, and points. That was, it was a really interesting discussion in terms of, um, you know, what you found um, in terms of, you know, when you incentivize um, a particular style of behaviour, how it rewards those kids who are already strong in it but doesn't necessarily support those kids that, that really those systems are, are brought into the classroom or the, the um, university course or wherever to, to support. And since that time, I've actually written and presented a conference paper on what happened with my gamification in the classroom. And so if people want to see that, you can find it over Because Play Matters. Look for the publications area, and it's, uh, it's listed there. Well, and, you know, I've noticed that with the grant, since the grant I was working on is sort of winding down, that as the rewards have stopped appearing, you know, it's like, hey, you you get these rewards for, you know, coming to one of our classes and participating in the activities. And now we're still offering activities because I find things to do, but there are less people showing up for them because they don't get the Walmart gift card at the end of it or the tournament prize that that was all funded by this grant. Yeah, and we've got hundreds of studies that show that uh, that's what happens. If you incentivize something, then you reduce someone's internal uh, motivation to do that thing. And so while they'll be they'll participate when the incentives are there, it's building up this reliance upon that reward. And if you take that away, um, so what I look at and talk a lot about is. All right, if you, if you have to use rewards, how do you use them in a way such that they don't become as meaningful or that you help people engage in ways that are more meaningful than the rewards so that they're willing to continue to be involved? And I'm actually working on that right now, uh, working on a book um, on this concept called The Gamification Journey. Fantastic. So are there any, any um, you know, hints in that, um, it, you know, in that direction, Scott? Because... You know, this is one of those really interesting discussions. I know, you know, so many teachers really do use that intrinsic and extrinsic motivation um, to to try and to try and, um, well, you know, they use the extrinsic motivation to try and get, bring the students along. And and really, what we want, I suppose, is is for the kids to be intrinsically motivated. It's a way of of encouraging that behaviour that that you know is ideal. I tell you what, Giles, let's let's have him on when he's closer to having that book published, and that way he's completed all of his writing and research, <laughs> and and let's talk about the Game Design Guild. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. Well, any excuse to get Scott back on is a good one, so. There you, there you go. We're part of his publicity tour now. <laughs> <laughs> and charging a very reasonable fee, I might add. That's right. <laughs> well, brilliant. All right, so, Scott, we were talking just a few days ago about your Game Design Guild, and I thought, this is something that we should share the word on and spread 
spread the information. So apparently you're you're moving onward and you're pressing forward with, with what you're doing there. Why don't you kind of define your game design guild for our listeners? Okay, so um, I actually, for those of you that are librarians, I actually presented this for the first time, this big concept at the American Library Association. So now I'm starting to talk more about it. This all started uh, when I was at MIT a few years ago, and their student organizations, I noted, were not so much made up of all students, but there were more organizations that happened to have students in them. There were, you know, hundreds of these organizations. And I got involved in quite a few of them. And what was cool about them is they created these commonplace points for people, students, members of the community, alumni, anyone with an interest in whatever the topic area was could come together and engage in that. So the student theater had a lot of people who weren't students. The uh, the various uh, contra dancing group that I did was not only some students, but many other people as well. And it created these this cool space that, that built on community and kept the community engaged with MIT. And I said, that's neat. I want to do something like that when I come, I come home. So um, when I came back to Syracuse in August of last year, I decided to start a group called the Game Designers Guild. And the idea behind it is that it would be a community group for people interested in game design. What's happened over the last year, it has actually been the project I've been doing that's gotten the most traction, actually, and the most cool things coming out of it. And uh, so I'll talk a little bit about what our structure is and where we're going with it. So the Game Designers Guild, the idea is that anyone in the community can come. We hold the event on a Friday night at Syracuse University because a Friday night you can park at the university. I wanted to make sure it was available. Usually <laughs> the, the building is completely deserted and we've got the campus to ourselves, unless there's a basketball game, in which case I've made a poor planning choice. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so... It's, it's, it, we, we advertise it in game shops. We advertise it. We, we try to advertise outside the university space and really reach out. We've gotten, people have shown up from other campuses to come to this. We've got folks coming up from, uh, from Cornell and from the other local schools are coming over. Um, and so the idea during each of the meetings, what we do is, is for the first half hour, I, I, I uh, facilitate some sort of a get-to-know-you game. Some sort of either, it, like uh, uh, Christmas time, I brought people in. I said, do you want to be naughty or nice? And at one table, we had apples to apples. And the other table, we had cards against humanity. Um, you know, and so I've done uh, Johann Sebastian Joust. I've done, I do all sorts of, I try to in, use this as an opportunity to introduce people to a wide variety of games they've probably not encountered before. Then uh, for the next hour, what we do is we invite someone from the community who needs a game created. So we've had the local science museum come. We've had a national battleground come. We've had a couple of different libraries come. Um, we've had a local nonprofit group that works on helping kids figure out their career interests while they're in middle school and can still make the choices about what they're going to take in high school and not get locked out of career interests because they didn't know what classes they should take. And we have pitch, we have, we invite them to come and pitch what they're looking for in a game. And those pitches have been all over the place. Some people have no idea. Some people have a very specific thing they're looking for. Um, but they pitch and then as a group, we brainstorm with them about what we could do. And then, so we do that for an hour from six to seven. And then at seven, we break up into small work groups. And the way that works is I say, all right, who has a game they'd like play tested? And anyone that's brought a game they'd like some play testers for. And these can be board games or digital games, any sort of game. Uh, we have screens around the room so we can set up with digital play testing. We have different people 
explain what's going on, um, explain their game. And then there's also a table where the person who came and visited us sits with anyone who wants to continue developing that game uh, to continue that brainstorming. And so then the rest of the evening sort of plays out with people. And if people also just brought regular games to play, they can do that as well. So it just turns into really a, a play session, a play testing session, and a continued brainstorm. And then we, uh, if there's interest in continued work on this game, we will continue to work with the folks on developing the game. And the idea is that once the game is, is at a prototype stage, if the organization is happy with it, we then partner with that organization to write a grant proposal to try and get funding for that game to actually be created. And the people that had volunteered their time along the way, if they want to be part of that grant, we try to write them into that grant in some, in some way. So that's the overall idea is to help the, have the community making games for the community, uh, to do these first stages to create the prototypes and then to help them seek funding to actually create the games. If we need the funding, sometimes we don't. But cool things have been happening because of it. So you you make this sound like you've already designed games. We have. We've actually got several things we've done. Um, the uh, first one was for the Fort Stanwix National Park, which is a national battleground. That was a really important point. And we, they came to us and said, we want a game people could play at home to help them want to come here. So we, you know, went back and forth. All right, do we do a shooter game? Do we do a tower defense game? Uh, what do we do? We ended up actually making a choose your own adventure style game that allows people to explore. It's called Stories from Stanwix, and it allows people to explore the stories of not only the soldiers and the officers, but the civilians who were affected by this uh, this this military battle going on right here. Um, so we've built it out completely uh, using a tool called ChoiceScript. ChoiceScript is a free tool you can use to create choose-your-own-adventure-style um, games. It works great if you're looking to do one. And actually, this works great with kids. Uh, it's an easy-to-learn scripting language. There's very little language to it. Uh, so it's really a good writing exercise and a good story writing exercise. And it's a tool that relatively quickly you can have a web-based game to explore. So we've... We've shown that to them. Um, they are they like it. They like what we've done with it. There's obviously directions we want to go, and so I'm meeting with them actually later this month to start the process of writing a grant. We're working with the Science Museum, and in August we're going to be doing a game jam, which is a rapid game creation uh, activity in the Science Museum for uh, seventh and eighth graders from some of the disadvantaged areas. They're going to be bussed in, and they're going to spend them in the morning. They're going to be turned loose in the Science Museum to say, find an exhibit you'd like. And then the Game Designers Guild folks will spread out around the museum and partner with the groups of kids and make a game that fits in that museum, while we also have scientists roaming to help with content and museum staff roaming to get ideas. Uh, we've got a, a kindergarten, a, a LARP for kindergartners, a live action role playing game about dinosaurs we've made for kindergartners for a local library that wants to celebrate some new dinosaur statues. So we, uh, we've developed that. So things are, things are continuing to roll. Um, we're finding that not everyone goes through the same cycle of we make the prototype. Some people just want some advice and some help. Um, so it's been interesting, and what's actually happened, the surprising thing, is we are now become a connecting point for some of these organizations to work together. And that's been a cool little surprise, where different groups, both on campus and off campus, are finding connections, and so around games that are being created that join them up. So that's a neat thing that's happening. So it's it's pretty exciting, actually, and it's continuing to roll. I've got... The, the attendance has varied uh, from 15 to 50, 
it's really all over the place. The attendance, the people attending have really shifted, though. It has become much more community and much less students, which has been interesting. Hmm. Um, that the last, at the last one, we had three families there with kids, which is fine. I invite the kids to come. And when I got time to talk about what games do you have to play test, this little girl gets up and she said, I'm so-and-so and I'm six and I made this game where you're playing a prince or a princess saving the kingdom. And I'd like people to come play my game. And that was really cool. I'm like, hey, this this is kind of neat. That's a really kind of like Sleeping Queens all over again. (laughs) Be a very empowering thing for her. Had that guy. So it went well. You know, she had a father who was uh, who had come the the month before to kind of scout it out, and came up and said, you know, I've made games with my kids. I'd like to bring them next time. And actually, they were one of the. He had two two daughters, and one of the daughters couldn't talk to me because she was such a big fan of board games with Scott. She was. She would hide behind him when I come over and speak. And she's like, she's such a huge fan of yours. She's just scared. Um, so that's, it's been, and I, I, that's a direction that I'm going to continue pushing it. I think there's a lot of power bringing together people from the community who like games and are interested in who normally would not have cross paths. And so my idea now, the next idea that I'm working on is to create a game designers guild hall online that would be the resources that a teacher or a librarian would need to start one of these in their community. Because I think it's an idea that would work well anywhere where there isn't a big game design school. Because what I found is is um, I've talked about this idea with other game design people working, professors working game design programs, and they're interested in it. But I think part of what you have to be able to do with this is recognize the value of letting the community members loose in making games. And it's not you as the expert who's going to make the games for them. You're going to you know, empower people and facilitate the creation of games. But sometimes you just have to sit back and let the games happen. Um, and so so this is where I'm at right now. Is I, I, I'm going to try and get a little funding to create something. And what I'm trying to get are ideas on what would be needed, what would be useful to a teacher or a librarian who's interested in games, probably someone listening to this podcast, what would you like to have in an online resource to help you start this? I could see it growing into forums where people can talk about uh, their challenges, they can talk about their successes, we can begin to collect data on the difference that games are making in communities and their games made by the communities. I don't know if franchise is the right term, but the idea is that anyone can open a Game Designers Guild. So we're the Game Designers Guild of Syracuse, and we're going to encourage other people to open it using the name. And down the road, have a conference where we get together and actually bring folks and bring some of their community members together. So I have some big ideas of where this can go. And right now, I'm trying to reach out and get... um, get pleas from community members to say, hey, here's something that we could use. If I wanted to start this in my school, I really would need X. And that's what I need to know right now so that I know what to ask for with a grant. So it sounds, you know, to, to boil it down, it's, it's almost like you're crowdsourcing game design for, for community groups and, and particular needs and so forth, and then facilitating also that network building between those groups. What, you know, if I can just go back prior, you're talking about where does a Guildhall concept go as a, as a broader concept, but can I take it back a little bit 
and just ask um, back earlier in the conversation you're talking about you know something like um, that military museum wanting you know particular um, game or the science museum or whatever um, where does it go from from that prototyping stage you know is there a next phase do you go do, do you take it all the way from discussion and proto- concept and prototyping all the way through to produced product what's the process there yeah so that's actually where we stand with the one that so the military folks they were the first group that came to us um and we've we've gone through the full prototyping with them so now the next process we're actually we're, we're going to meet and begin the to write some grant proposals to get some funding to actually develop it out so they can be installed in the museum um wow. this is bec- yeah so this this particular institution it's a national park and there was a big issue we we had a, about a 5 month delay because in the United States there has been some big funding issues about them talking about shutting down funding to all the national parks um and so they didn't they said well we like your game but we don't know if we're going to exist <laughs> so yeah. Um, so, but then now they know that what they're going to be running on, but they don't have the funding to be able to build this out themselves. So now what we'll do is, so in this example, the structure that we've created can not only work for this national park, but it could actually link into other battlegrounds in the area hmm. so that people can play a story that continues, that they get to understand not only, okay, in this year it happened here, but what happened three months later down here? So that's actually what we're going to be uh, writing a grant to try and pitch is a system that can be used not only by this park, but then also by other parks who want to have people link into the storytelling system. Because there's this, it's been wonderfully educational for me to learn about, like in the national parks and these battlegrounds, they're actually much more interested in telling the stories of the people and not focusing on the actual battle that happened. Mm. That's where they're moving is, is helping people understand the stories. So that was, it's, so for, for what I'm getting out of it is, is really this wide spectrum of understanding of how games can be used in different community groups. Um, but that's, so that's one path. The other path, like with the LARP we're doing, for the dinosaur LARP, we're just going to run it in, and and put it on. It'll be a small scale LARP, but then what we'll do is we'll write that up a, into a more generic structure. And I think that's the idea with each of these: is whenever possible, we're going to take whatever we do as a prototype or a sample or as a test run, and then turn it into a toolkit, to turn it into a framework or a model. And that sort of stuff is what can live in this guild hall because what we really need are are resources like those toolkits where you can say, oh, someone needs a game that does this kind of thing. Okay, here's a framework that we can use to build out of. Mm. Well, one of, the, one of the first questions I always got when I was working for a publisher, and I still get it now that I'm doing a podcast on games, is, well, how do I protect my work so that somebody doesn't steal it from me? And it sounds like that's not what you're concerned about. No, um, because we're really pushing up front that people getting involved, we help them understand we're making games for good here. And the games that we're involved with are going out to the community groups. They're designed to help the community. Um, this is not a place for personal or financial gain. This is a place where the community is making a difference in their local community. And I think that's what's really empowering about it is it's we are, are trying to facilitate these connections between people living in a community and organizations in a community that can use a game to make a local difference. So the community groups actually are are one of the benefits they get out of it is they get many more people knowing what their community group does, mm-hmm. and they get these connections that are made. Um, so it's 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 been interesting. I didn't expect it to take on the life that it's taking on. Of, of my projects that I started when I came back from my sabbatical, this is the one that's actually kind of bubbling up quite heavily, and I think it's because 
these connections that are happening in different asp- different areas of the local community, it's a really exciting thing. Mm. But but I'm assuming that if somebody brings in a game that they're showing off of their own... Oh, for the playtesters. That's theirs. It belongs to them, but they've got testers who are there just to sort of play and continue in this game design experience. Yeah, we, we, we tell folks that uh, they should talk with the, the game designers before talking about their game design outside of the Game Designers Guild. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the things. If you're bringing it here, then you are doing a public playtest because this is a, a public event open to the public. And so folks need to be aware that if there's something they really do need to keep secret, that this would not be the appropriate venue to bring it out. Has there been any, um, you know, I guess when you're, that there is a real con- concept around um, game design that it's a really people need to protect their ideas, particularly outside probably the people more familiar with the modern board gaming industry. Um, but the idea that they really need to, to protect or um, trademark or patent their their particular concept, has, has there been any issues surrounding that and, and how have you sort of dealt with it? So far that hasn't been an issue because most of the game designs that have been brought here by individuals are in the very early stages and so they're not uh, – they're – they're just beginning to explore that. One of the other things that we do as part of the Game Designers Guild is during our meetings, we do talk about different game design issues. So we'll have a small part where we talk about ideas of formation. And so talking about uh, intellectual property and where that comes into play, that's ripe for this kind of thing. And that's another thing I hope to do with these resources in the Guild would be to do short, maybe 10 to 15 minute uh, video presentations that can be shown at a Guild meeting about some of these topics so that game designers have a chance to to learn this stuff. Um, I'm teaching game design classes at the university, but not everyone has the thousands of dollars or the time needed to dedicate to a full semester class. So mm. part of what I'm doing is taking some of the content from that class and actually presenting it in, in smaller bite-sized chunks at the guild meetings. Fantastic. So what about um, discussions that arise, you know, you playing playtest a particular game or somebody comes in with a particular concept, um, is there any discussion or is there any system or, or protocol you have in terms of how feedback is delivered to that person to make sure that the experience for them is, is a positive thing, uh, you know, because invariably when somebody you know, throws out something that is near and dear to them and it is criticised, um, people can get defensive and, and it can be a, a confrontational experience for them emotionally. Yeah, and, and that is an interesting uh, point. It's not something that I have formalised. What I try to do during the playtesting stage is actually float between the different groups and watch for any issues or try to encourage uh, positive discussion. But again, that's, a, that's another good example of something that should be available as a resource so that folks can come in, they can have something that says, here's how we're going to treat each other, and here's what to expect if you are presenting a game, um, what to expect if you are pitching an idea, what to expect if you are doing a playtest. I think that's a, those are good documents that should be created for these expectations to help people understand how to engage with each other. Absolutely. As you said, the, the whole structure around the idea of pitching an idea to brainstorming um, concepts around that idea to coming coming up with a with a basic prototype to playtesting that that whole structure that process is something that can be used beyond this sort of game design guild you know you could be using it teachers could be using it in the kindergartens or teachers could be using it in classrooms or librarians could be using it in their particular libraries to um you know run 
specific activities around game design in those environments? Well, there's so much that um, that you get out of game design that you don't get out of just playing games. I mean, there's with there's so much in that game design process that's authentic learning opportunities uh, from both creative writing and, and technical writing in order to write the narrative, in order to write the rule system. Uh, you've got the programming and or graphic design concepts to lay something out. You've got the understanding of mathematics um, and economics and statistics in order to create these game mechanisms. There's information literacy. If you're going to create a game that's set in an authentic environment, you've got to actually go out and do research about that. Um, there's There's... This is something I, when I talked with librarians about thinking about game design in their libraries instead of just playing games, that there's so many more authentic skills we can point to that are built through the game design process. And, and then you get all the good stuff of playing games too. All that happens as you begin to play test and play. And there's the, you know, iterative design and understanding how to give and take, uh, critique and feedback. Um, there's a lot of good stuff that happens when you make games. Hmm. Absolutely. So, Don, I know that you have done uh, game design work in your library. Um, what are what is what are some of your reactions or ideas about this concept? If you were to take what you do and uh, open it up a bit to having people from the outside coming in who need games and focusing on games for good, how would that change things, or would this be something that would be useful? Or I'm curious now, to get your feedback. I, I think this would be an amazing, amazing assistive tool because we have a tough time formalizing what we're trying to do and and getting the word out because right now we have a game design group that has kind of stopped meeting because the the kids who are participating well they're kids and it's summertime and they're not all in town and you know next week who knows they might some of them might be in town but they might not know where their prototype is but so if we had something that was a little more formal it's like here's why we're meeting and there were some more adults involved and one of the things that I look for is some cross-generational programming, which I've done with some of my technology classes, and that's been a big deal. And so I think that you know, something that says, here's how you can reach out to your local organizations and explain, oh, we don't want our gym, you know, our chain or, you know, McDonald's to come to us and request a game because they've got a million dollar budget and it's not going to do us any good if they roll this game out in a, in a million other communities. But on the other hand, if we've got one of our local battlefields or the rice museum or something like that, who would benefit from it and it would help the community, how do we sort of set the limits of what we'll work on or where do we go and, and how do we continue the development process in such a way that it doesn't alienate participants in the group either because we can't say, well, here's what the rights are or here's how you give playtest feedback without making it personal. And any of those little elements would be a delightful thing. Yeah, I found what the, the magic that is happening with this is that games for good connection and that games designed for to make a difference in your local community because that takes away so many misgivings i find that you know because one of the things that i ran into when i was working on recreational games is people saying oh well we can't have recreational games in our school or library and i have to say well you can here's all the reasons why it's good mm. um but now i say you know oh should we do this in our library it's like okay well here are two big reasons that are very easy to justify if you need a curriculum based or skill based reason here's a laundry list of things you get when you make games and if you need a 
reason to exist in the community. Well, you're making a difference in your local community. You're empowering your community members to make a difference in your local community. And that's just good stuff. And that is, that is extremely easy to justify. You can find something from that <laughs> to justify this to administrators. Um, whether it's, we get to show how our school is making a difference outside of our school walls. We get to mm-hmm. build connections between professionals and organizations and the people in our school. We get to connect families together because having families come together with this and make games together, that's cool. That's, that's neat stuff. And so that's what I, that's what I'm finding, and I want to empower others to do this and give them the tools they need to do it because it's 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 hitting very cool points about why games are good things in a lot of different spaces. Right now, it's I really think that this game design guild, and I could be wrong, will be more useful or have a better response at an environment where people are there to learn. And so I think that you'll, you'll get a much better traction at university or college libraries that are schools that are also part of the community than you will at maybe some of the libraries where literacy in the community is down to around 50%. You know, I'm hoping that's not the case. You know, I mean, obviously our literacy is a little bit better than that here. But, you know, we if you don't have a culture where going to the library is cool or essential – it's going to be much tougher to get people involved. Yeah, the, the big one of the big marketing messages that I try to get out is I want to empower gamers to recognize that those years they've played of of uh, those years they've spent playing games has value. There's a way they can use all of those skills that that encyclopedic knowledge of game mechanisms, that understanding what is fun about a game, that has a lot of value. And if we can get this message out to say, hey, you know, take that gaming you've been doing, come here, help us do cool things with it. Um, there's there's a lot there's an empowering message with that. I'm thinking of of this whole um, you know game designers guild from a from a selfish point of view. And while you're talking, thinking about how uh, I might have been able to or be able to bring that into my classroom, um, I think in a primary school with with kids that I'm the age groups that I'm dealing with, I would be thinking along the lines of starting with a very in. In insular, inward, inwardly looking sort of focus and then starting to look out into the community. And so starting off with that whole concept of let's design games. So our, we might have a particular theme um, for a, a term or let's say for my classroom, the theme next term is to do with science and particular fields of science. So kids might be able to pick something of interest to them in, in those particular areas and then design a game around that. And I can immediately see the educational benefits of that because what they're doing is they're they're trying to structure an experience that builds a model of how that thing functions uh, and provides that experience for the players. So, you know, I can see so much positive sort of educational value in in getting the kids to think about um, their particular thing in, in those terms. Then eventually, if that was successful, building that into, you know, what else can we build games about? Can be about the um, other things that are going on in the school, the broader school, um, you know, activities, the, the the community beyond the school, and that's where you start to to open up. You know, that that that's what I'm thinking. Is that you know, the resources around what you're doing? Do you think would help with that process, Scott? 
Well, sure, because the idea is that we want to create I, – I understand that many of the people who will be interested in putting one of these groups together may be a gamer who enjoys a specific genre of game, but what they really need are much broader resources on uh, – the, how do you build games that apply in a wide variety? I mean, we understand, um, the three of us understand tabletop games very well, but it's sort of a, a digital space or a LARP space. You know, there's, there's a lot of power to face to face and training style games. There's a lot of game structures that are out there. And this idea of when you think about, Hey, we're making a game and in three months, it's going to be played in public. The public's going to see it. There's an inspiration that gets, I find, that gets uh, the people who've been attending pretty excited to say, wow, you mean what I'm doing here, other people are going to see. And when you get to that point, we actually, we've had, so far, we've got one thing that kind of went through the whole stage of going out in public, and the buzz that generated to bring new people into the guild really worked well because they came and they saw this thing and like, hey, that's cool. And then I was able to market and say, hey, by the way, if you like doing this stuff, we meet once a month. Um, here's the website with that information. Yeah, I love that idea. We run games days uh, on a regular basis at our school or twice a year at our school. And I could just see a real place in a games day like that for kids to be able to show off games that they've designed. I think that'd be a really um, rich experience. Um I think, you know, we're talking about resources. One of the resources, you just mentioned it then, you know, you talk about so many different types of games from LARPs to digital games, you know, uh, more traditional-style role-playing games, um, tabletop games to, you know, board and card-style games. There are so many iterations, you know, the training and training games and so on um, that, that I'm unfamiliar with. And I'd certainly value, I think, resources around, you know, what are they and, and what might they look like and how might they work. That would certainly be an eye-opener from, from my point of view. And this is where I'm using that first half an hour of each thing, of each of each guild meeting, to expose participants to a different style of game they might not have seen. And so that would be a great uh, set of resources to create, are what are short versions of these different game styles that you can bring as people are coming in that they can get engaged with to just get in. Because then what we do is we actually reflect upon that. Well, what might that sort of thing be useful? And that builds everyone's toolkits on recognizing when different sorts of games might be the, the games to turn to. That sounds fantastic. So I'd like to actually invite um, listeners, if you're sitting out there and you're saying, you know, Scott, I like this idea, I'd like to do one, but I really need X. There is a guild over on BoardGameGeek.com that, uh, for this podcast, and we'll start a thread there. And I would invite you to come to that guild and post your requests, what you'd like to see. Because I'm at this point right now of writing a, a proposal to try and get some funding to make this. And this is when I would love to get your ideas of what you would need to have in order to help you create a Game Designers Guild in your local community. What would be useful to you? This is a good time to tell me that. So we've got our website, gameschoolslibraries.com, and if people go there, um, you'll find a link on the front page there to our Board Game Geek Guild. Um, or if you're a member of Board Game Geek, you can go head over to the Guild section and find it there. Um, and, yeah, we'll put a thread up, and we'd, I'd certainly love to read any of those comments. I've certainly, as I said, Scott, got some things you know around those different game styles that I'd certainly love to find out about. Right, and we'll post a link to Scott's you know, guild posts, uh, because you've said you already have a guild up, Scott, right? So um, the best way to keep up with what's going on with this project um, is over at BecausePlayMatters.com. That's the um, 
That is the URL from my game lab, which is the home of the Game Designers Guild. And that's that's the current site. Um, the URL I have registered, which just points you there, but you'll learn is at gdghall.com. Um, that will be the Game Designers Guild Hall space. But right now, it just points you to becausePlayMatters.com, and that's where you'll continue to see some uh, news about this as it develops. Oh, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I really love that that idea um, on the whole crowdsourcing of, of games, that whole community focus. You know, it's really sounds fantastic. I'd love love to be involved. Well, and you talk about something that, you know, not that we're here to legitimize games, but that would really bring the attention to people to say, hey, games aren't frivolous. They're also brilliant. Right. And those years, and all those years that, that you've spent playing games as a gamer haven't been wasted that you've built up all of the skills and knowledge that you have that can be used for positive change in your community and let us empower you to do that. Uh, you know, it's funny funny you say that, Don and Scott. You know, you were talking about pleasing uh, grant recipients and, or, you know, the people that you're, you're sorry, sending grants off to and, and, you know, local authorities and so forth, whether it be a principal lawyer, um, the library technician who's over you or whoever else. And... It might sound like we're arguing, you know, that oh, you can, you can, you can get games in if you if you tell them it's all about this, that, and the other. You know, you tell them that all of the educational benefits, and they'll let you bring it in. It, there's certainly no, you know, sense of cynicism in us doing that, or there's no sense of it's really just us trying to to push a hobby through because there really is that value in these activities. There really is. Um, such a positive, um, empowering social educational value in in can be in playing games as as we've talked about on this podcast before in the gamification of of the classroom as you know Scott joined us in that episode before or in this game design process you know, I can just see how enriching that experience could be for my students and it's something you know when I think about it that 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 I could certainly get really passionate about. So, you know, when when we talk about it in those terms, we're really talking about it from, from that point of view of, because we really do believe in it. And there's a lot of power that happens when people do this together. Um, this idea of uh, social constructivism, that the idea that we, we learn because we create, we demonstrate learning through creation, and when you're engaging with others as you're doing that creation that's so much more empowering than just doing it yourself because now you have to talk about why you feel the way you do and how you've learned things and you learn from other people's reflections. And so a group-based construction process is one of the most powerful processes to explore content in the classroom. It's life skills, isn't it? It's so vital life skills and and often very poorly represented in actual curriculum documents but such important skills nonetheless. And they're certainly not stuck on standardized tests that we have here in the U.S. So, <laughs> Well, we're, we're stuck with those as well in Australia, yes. unfortunately. <laughs> well, the nice thing about doing this is that the game design process can be used as a method to teach the content that goes on these standardized tests. Because the, 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 the game design process gets you, you basically are, are teaching the topic. To make a game about a topic, it's the mm. same process you would go through to teach the topic because you're having to facilitate someone else learning about it. The other nice thing about the Game Designers Guild process is it gets people thinking outside of the box of I'm making a game I want to play. Because a lot of people, when they start making games, are like, I'm making a game for me. 
And the shift that we do with this guild, and this is a shift I do in all my classes, is you get to have to get the designers thinking, no, you're making a game for other people. And how does that change the way you think about a game? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One thing I've noticed, though, is that I was using game design for one of our grants. And not only do they have to learn to make the game, but they go out and they teach themselves. It's like, all right, we need to know all the things that you should have if a hurricane's going to hit South Carolina. What kind of safety do you need? What you know do you need to do around your house to make sure it's not going to fall down? What do you need to have in case power goes out? And so the kids, instead of reading this list of stuff that I had, they were on a quest to go find these other cool things that they could contribute to the game because learning it, yeah, they weren't learning it to learn it because you never really learn stuff as well when you're just learning it because I have to sit here and learn something. But when you're going to use things, that's when it, it sinks in a little better. When you learn it because all of a sudden this is important to me, it seems to grab onto their brains a little better. And that second level of not only is it important to you, but now what you do is going to make a difference to these other people. Helping people understand they're making a game for an audience that's out there gets them really excited about it. And they're building a play experience that has to, from beginning to end, um, translate or get across some some story or some particular you know experience or piece of learning or focus um and doing that in a way that is engaging for other players and covers that experience well you know there's a real craft in doing that and i guess i'll throw out here as well because i always take opportunities to do such if you are working with a foundation um or an organization that you think might be interested in actually funding this uh, get in touch with me because we're at that stage where we're looking for some group to partner with to actually make this happen. That sounds really exciting, Scott. And we can, as you've said before, I th- really, you know, I want to restate it though. You can uh, find all of this at becauseplaymatters.com. That's right. Becauseplaymatters.com is the home for the lab, and the Game Designers Guild is currently a link on there. As the Guild Hall expands out, you will be able to find that connection there. It'll be at gdghall.com. I just love the way it's so community-minded. You know, there's, it's not stuck behind paywalls or, or you know, um, register and send your firstborn child and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, right. kudos for that. Well, but if you're interested in game design as a career, there's nothing like having worked on half a dozen games to mm-hmm. get you started. Yep. 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 That's, that's a huge part of this is because most people that are gamers are really good at one aspect of gaming, but being able to build out that toolkit that you've got of here's all the different sorts of games that you could bring to the table. That's the advantage of coming together with others is you get to learn about tabletop or role playing or LARPs or training games or video games. Um, all of them have value and all of them have points where that's the tool you want to use. And it's that cross-pollination too of, of ideas, you know, because a game doesn't have to be some this particular category. You know, it can, it can be cross-categories. Well, all right then. So, Scott, thank you once again for joining us. Well, thank you guys for giving me the chance to talk about this. And I'm, this is my, my big project for the next year is really trying to get something uh, going with this because I think there's a lot of good stuff that could happen uh, when we help our gamers realize that they have the power. No, it's fantastic, Don. Fantastic, Scott. Really uh, interesting discussion, and we'd certainly love to have you back on when you're closer to publishing that book that you were talking about earlier as well. (laughs) Yep. No, that'll you know that the clone Scott will work on that. We'll. uh... 
I don't, I don't think a book is, I mean, books are always nice. Gotta love them working in the library and everything. But I, I think that, you know, a collection of, you know, files and videos, audio segments, whatever it is, be much more useful than, than just having a, a solid state. Look, here's a book. Mm. Well, I think that's the, you know the whole concept around that the, the Guildhall website being that nexus point for all of those forms of media and, and and points of learning and so forth is such a good one. Yeah, the fun balance that I have to do as a professor still wandering his way towards full professorship is I have to satisfy both the scholarship needs as well as these uh, other other needs, and so it's always fun to try and find that balance uh, between more scholarly presentations and presentations that's open to the world. Mm. Well, brilliant. No, thank you again very much, Scott. Um, yeah, and we'd love to have you back on. All right, thank you all. Well, that was Games in Schools and Libraries, and thanks very much, Scott, for coming on. Uh, we will post a thread over in the Board Game Geek Guild. Again, go to our website, gameschoolslibraries.com, and you'll be able to find a link to our guild there. Um, and if you do have any ideas for uh, resources that you'd be you'd be interested in or that you'd like um, or ways that you'd love to get involved with this um, fantastic idea then post them there we'd love to read them um, yeah and that's it thank you very much games in schools and libraries is kindly hosted by the games for educators website you can find them at www.g4ed.com you can subscribe to their newsletter, check out games through their game finder, and of course, it's the home of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. Drop by and post comments on the episodes, we love feedback. Games in Schools and Libraries is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. To view a copy of this license, visit our webpage at the Games for Educators website.